0: Welcome to the Mark Driscoll Ministries podcast. To find more Bible teaching from Pastor Mark, visit markdriscoll.org. Thank you for listening and being a part of Mark Driscoll Ministries. And remember, it's all about Jesus. All right, you having a good week? You happy, you joyful, you encouraged? Let's fix that and talk about politics, amen? Let's, Let's fix that problem for you. And it's interesting, if you're new, most of my sermons, almost all the time, there's two basic kind of sermons, preaching from the Bible, preaching to the Bible. Almost all the time I preach from the Bible, we go through books of the Bible. In this little series, I wanna preach to the Bible because here's what I think. People are talking about each other, but they're not talking to each other in our culture. People are yelling, but no one's listening. And and what I wanted to do is I wanted to listen to the objections and the questions of those who are either de church, they used to go, but they gave up, or they're church they've never been, to try and actually listen. Okay, what are the objections? What are the questions? What are the problems? You know, what are what are your questions that we might be able to help you wrestle through because God loves people and we love people and we want to understand them so that we can help them understand Jesus. That's the motivation and the heart behind the entire project. And so I didn't set the agenda, uh, the data did, and I'll get into it in a moment. Uh, Nonetheless, when it comes to this issue of politics, I am under no illusion that we're all in the same place. There's an entire spectrum And so let's just acknowledge that and people move along that spectrum. For me, I started in politics as a kid who was student body president of my public high school and uh, we had an old building that was literally falling apart. The roof was leaking and so I wanted it to be renovated but there were preservationists that opposed that so I got involved in politics. I backed a political candidate who was a Democrat. I would have been liberal and progressive on pretty much every issue at that time and got involved in a campaign doing writing for the local newspaper, being a student representative, doing door knocking, all of that to get that candidate elected for this cause that I was motivated toward. At that same time, I was not yet a Christian and I was dating Grace, who's now my wife, and we would argue about politics because she was on the completely opposite end of the political spectrum. And one of the issues that we would argue most frequently about was abortion. I was strongly, strongly, strongly pro-abortion. She was strongly, strongly, strongly pro-life. We've now been together for 30 years and married for more than 26, so I'll just tell you, we had to work some stuff through, amen? Some of you have those marriages. You know, you're this close to being on the same page. And so that's where we started. She would argue against abortion, I would argue for abortion, and she was right, I was wrong, but I would win because I'm me, and I am... (laughs) Good at arguing. I, my mom will tell you, it was like raising a little attorney. It was hard to argue with Marky, he's, he's complicated. And what Grace finally decided was she got tired of arguing with me, so she gave me a Bible and just encouraged me to argue with it, okay? And I thought I knew what the Bible said. Yeah, good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell. I'm a good person, glad that's taken care of. I assumed I knew what it said. And as I started reading the Bible, I'm like, I disagree with that, I don't like that, I'm offended by that, I would change that, I can't believe that. All of a sudden, I'm no longer arguing with Grace, I'm arguing with the Bible. So thank you, Grace, for giving me a Bible and I apologize for arguing. But nonetheless, as I started reading, I thought, man, okay, this book is different than what I thought. And I reached a point in my life where I had to make a decision. And I, I, I've done this before and I don't, it, it was gonna be this, that's an old book. It needs some edits, some updating, some refreshing. There are some parts that I disagree with. Therefore, there are some parts that I can disregard. I, I think that I, you know, I live 2000 years later than this book. I'm very smart, educated, winsome, insightful, and I have a right to to make some modifications to this old book, which has a few problems. Or, I'm gonna come under an authority beyond myself. I'm going to acknowledge that when I disagree, I'm wrong. And that when I disagree, I need to change my mind. And that I need to be humble enough to learn and listen, And I need to be submissive enough that some authority is over me and I'm not the highest authority in my life. And that decision honestly was to be a Christian or a non-Christian. And I'm happy to report in God's grace, by the grace of God, um, I came under the authority of the word of God. And that meant that initially a lot of what I believed was not consistent or congruent with the Bible, um, but the Bible is like an anvil that all the issues get hammered out on and straightened out on. I don't know where you're at with Christianity. I don't know where you're at with the Bible. I don't know where you're at on the political spectrum. But I wanna address these issues even though they're complicated in our culture, and i want to do so in a way that i hope is respectful and also clarifying and all of this comes from a project where i wanted to know what are the primary objections of those who are non-christians or those who are formerly christians and so a phone survey was done uh, 913,000 people were called not by me somebody asked i like did you make those calls no <laughs> No, I don't have that kind of cell data. No, it wasn't me. Uh, a, a firm called 913,000 people chose 1,000 people between the ages of 18 and 44 with a median age of 31 and the average interview lasted 12 minutes. And I was trying to listen, okay? For those who, who don't believe what the Bible says, what do they have to say? And if I could understand that, maybe I could help them understand what the Bible says. The result was, 25% were unchurched, and maybe that's you. They're like, I didn't grow up going to church. I don't I don't really have a history in church. 75% were de meaning they went at one time, maybe when they were a kid, and they stopped going. That would have been me. I went to Catholic church, some with my folks when I was little. Uh, when I hit my teen years, I just kind of hit the eject button and stopped going. I would have been de-churched. This led to the top issues that arose, and they're addressed in the book. Feel free to... Grab a free copy on the way out. Here are the top seven. Number one is uh, intolerance, 55%. Some Christian groups are too intolerant. We dealt with that last week. Number two was in the, and so what I would say is, there's really one issue intolerance that works itself out in different spheres, sexual, moral, spiritual, political, but it's one issue that works it, itself out in multiple areas. Uh, Number two, sexuality, 50%. said the Christian faith and I have different views on social issues like abortion or gay marriage. I'm gonna hit these issues out of order. Um, And some of my, we'll just let you read in the book. 49% was politics. I don't like how some Christian groups meddle in politics. 45%, that's what we're gonna deal with today. 45% morality, many Christians are hypocrites. 42% religion, there are lots of religions. I'm not sure one has to be the right way. I'll hit that on Easter. Drops down to 29% equality. Christians believe that all people are not created equal. And then lastly, number seven, authority, 28%. I don't share the beliefs that the Christian faith tells me that I should. All of this data was done before the most recent presidential election. And I believe that the data was prophetic, anticipating the current cultural climate that we are experiencing. And I believe that the volume level on all of these issues has been significantly tuned and turned up. In addition, I wanted to hear what conversations happened around these issues. So then we commissioned focus groups, male and female, four cities, eight groups, San Francisco, Austin, Boston, Phoenix, eight to nine participants, Um, ages 18 to 44, emphasis on those ages 25 to 34. They met for two hours with a professional facilitator who at that time had overseen 1700 different focus groups for business politics and the like. These are total strangers that sit down to have a conversation. Grace asked me this question this week, was the focus group comprised of the same people who took the survey? No, totally different groups of people who ended up saying the exact same thing and landing on the exact same issues, which for me just helps to confirm the findings of the research. And so that being the case um, with the focus groups, it leads to this issue of politics. I tend not to be a highly political person. I, I, I try to observe a lot culturally because I wanna know what is going on and how it pertains um, to the word of God before we get into the objections, let me just give you kind of my overview of American politics. This will be fun, right? We got nothing else to do. So I was talking with a friend of mine. He was born in Africa. He now lives in London and he and I were in Dallas, okay? And we were eating nachos cause that's my love language. So we were eating nachos and we were talking and having a good time and, uh, and, and I, I looked at him and I said, hey, so what do Brits think about American politics? And he literally did this. He's like, oh, brother Mark, you don't want to know. You don't want to know. I said, well, I kind of do. That sounds interesting. Um, he said, well, how would you explain American politics as it currently is? And here was what I said. I said, well, there was a social commentator that I found insightful and I'm sort of summarizing. Um, and expanding on what they said, I said, uh, in America, it's like a dysfunctional family. America is a dysfunctional family. And the Republicans are the daddy party, and the Democrats are the mommy party. And if you feel in danger or somebody's gonna hurt you, you vote for dad. More military, more police, more guns, more walls, more borders, we're gonna get the bad guys. If you want more stuff, <laughs> vote for mom. Hey, college is expensive. I need health care. Can you give me somewhere to live? I need something to eat. Vote for Mom. What happened in the last election? We literally had Mom and Dad. Okay. Some would say a, good, a bad Mom and a bad Dad. Just, I'm out. I, I'm out. Okay. So. And what it was, it was like a divorce. And the question was, who gets the house? And this is the White House, just so you know. And then it was, who gets custody of all the kids? That's America. And I said, what happened was, it was a bitter, bitter, bitter divorce. And what happens in the divorce is, some people take dad's side. Mom's the problem. Some take Mom's side, dad's the problem. Some of the kids are like, can't we get along? Can't we be friends? Can't we kiss and make up? Can't we, you know, play ukulele and hug each other and just sort it out? The the mediators. And then some of the kids run away from home. Okay, that's what they're like, they're gone. I looked at him, I said, so America's one big divorce dysfunctional family. He's like, Oh. And that, that's where we find ourselves. So any issue you bring up, there's a mushroom cloud and a lot of controversy because every issue gets put in the context of this family dynamic, okay? And let me just say this. You're going to be offended in this sermon, okay? I, I, in the first service, I stopped looking this way because so many people were walking out. It was discouraging. So I started preaching to these people, okay? <laughs> So no, no pressure, but you know, I'm, I'm fragile this morning and I've experienced a lot of rejection. That being said, I'm trying to be helpful, hang in there till the end uh, and come back next week, okay? Because it'll get better, all right? So what I realized is I was reading all the focus group transcripts on these issues being discussed. It's 400 pages, I read them over and over and over. And I pulled out what I think are kind of six common misperceptions about churches and politics. Here was the first one. Our nation is built, this is a quote, and it was a quote in more than one focus group. Our nation is built on freedom from religion. Close, amen? Close. One word is, which one is it? From is different than of, right? Like if I said, I have freedom of ice cream. That's not freedom from ice cream. That's very different, right? Freedom, we have freedom of speech, not freedom from speech. Just go to a college campus and help me get the news out. This is, this is a fact, okay? We have freedom of religion. That's different than freedom from religion. And what many of the people thought was, well, we, we have separation of church and state. Well, the point is that the church should be independent of the state so that it can be the conscience of the state. That ultimately bad things happen when politicians say, thus saith the Lord. How many of you are glad that that churches are not run by the government? I would not have a job. I promise you that right now. And what happens when the government oversees the church, then the government uses the church to convince the people that the government is in the place of God. Horrible things happen. If you've been to a strict Muslim country that believes in what I'll call Sharia law, they will hold to the Quran, not the Bible. There is no separation of church and state. That's not what the founders of our country wanted. Many of them were pilgrims and Puritans who came here because they wanted to have a place to worship God freely without the state determining the message, right? In Nazi Germany, one thing that Adolf Hitler did is he took over the church. He got rid of the real church. He replaced it with a state church. And then the next thing you know, instead of the cross, you've got the Nazi symbol up front and everybody's pledging allegiance to someone other than Jesus. And that's a problem. That's demonic. So the church needs to be independent of the state so that it can speak as the conscience of the state and distinguish between God and government. So we have freedom of religion, which means you can join whatever church, mosque, synagogue, belief structure, ideology, spirituality. It is a marketplace of ideas There's not freedom from people's beliefs. There's freedom of people to believe. Number two, Christians are a majority in America. That was kind of the assumption of many. Jesus said that this would not be the case. Matthew 7, 13 and 14, he says, wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it. Jesus says the road to hell is a highway with a lot of lanes and the road to heaven is a little one-lane dirt road. There's lots more people on that road than this road. He says that Christians will always be the minority. There was this assumption that we're the majority trying to impose. We're the minority trying to propose. That's how we work. This being said, there is a difference between those who would profess faith and those who practice faith. If you ask the average American, are you a Christian? Many will say yes. It's easy to profess something you do not practice. How many of you have a gym membership? <laughs> Raise your hand, okay. Let me just say, you're not all looking real fit, okay? No judgment, just an observation. Why is it that people are not fit but have a gym membership? because they don't go there and do anything, okay? For many of us, the gym membership is our way of feeling guilty and paying a, a, a sort of tithe duty obligation for not working out. You know, like, I'm not going to work out, but I will give money, so I feel better about myself, because at least, at least it costs me something. Now, in the same way, you can ask people, do you, go to, do you have a church? Yeah, I, go to a, I have a church. Do you go to that church? No, I don't. I don't go to that church. I don't tithe, I don't pray, I don't read my Bible. I don't practice something that I profess. I say it in the book. I think that the number percentage of practicing born again, Bible believing, Jesus loving Christians in America is probably closer to maybe 8%. That would mean that there are more left-handed people, more Texans and more pet cats in America than practicing Christians, okay? Number three, the other assumption was Christianity is organized and powerful. How many of you have served or led in a church or ministry and you immediately know that the organized part is not entirely true, (laughs) right? Right, right? The fact that Christianity is global is just evidence that God gets stuff done, right? Not that we really had it all figured out. Christianity is not widely organized or powerful, but that was the perception. Here's a man in Austin. He says, as far as what scares me about groups of people in the world that have the potential to do harm, he says, you know, first of all, you have radical Muslim extremists and evangelical Christians. He's like, the jihadist and the Jesus, the Jesus and the jihadists, those are the scary ones right? And then there's a big drop-off, and then you get down into maybe military dictators, North Korea and Iran. Let me just say this. He's never been to North Korea. I just promise you that, right? You're never like, well, the the moderate folks are the North Koreans. No, they're not. Um, Then you have everybody else falling down from there. He says, I watch the news all day, every day, and I read a lot. Christianity is not organized, it is not powerful. And let's just say this, that Christians do not hold a unified position on most any social issue, at least those who would profess to be Christians. You could pick any issue and there are churches, denominations, traditions, Christians across the whole spectrum, right? I mean, I saw it in the news not long ago, a bunch of pastors got together to go pray God's blessing over an abortion clinic. Okay, we're not uni- at least those who would profess to be Christians, we're not all unified on everything. It's not like we agree on everything and we all get along and we all work together. There is, there, is, there is a variance of opinion from those who would confess to be Christian. Number four, church money is used for politics. This came up over and over and over. A woman in Boston said, You know, my problem is people give money to their church, they get a tax deduction, then the church uses it to fund political candidates and that's wrong. You shouldn't use donor dollars to fund political causes or candidates. So the moderator asked, so you're saying that churches have political action committee money that goes to campaigns to which she uh, replied, "Mm, yes. You say this, first of all, there's something called the Johnson Amendment. Again, what I'm trying to do is explain And I want you to understand so that as you have conversations, you don't just get caught in the ranting and name calling and stereotyping, but you're part of the conversing and thinking and resolving. But in 1954, there was something called the Johnson Amendment that was put forth that said that churches that get donor dollars and give tax deductions cannot back individual political candidates. So most churches do not, some do, And that has not really been tested in court. The government tends not to do anything about that. This doesn't mean that churches and Christians can't be involved in social moral issues, because for us, some things that people would say are political issues are for us life issues and Bible issues. God made human life and it's sacred. That is for us a Bible issue that has political implications. Now, that being said, Churches, ministries, or an IRS, the Internal Revenue Service categorizes us as 501c3. That's the designation for the tax status. That's a not-for-profit religious organization. Are there other 501c3 nonprofit organizations that receive donor dollars are in fact involved in political activities? Yes, one is called Planned Parenthood. One is called Greenpeace. Another is called the American Civil Liberties Union, the ACLU. So there are groups that I would say are on the right, groups that are on the left, groups that completely hold adversarial positions of what is best for human flourishing, and both can receive donations, give, charitable deductions, so why is it that these people have no right to be involved in those matters, and these people do? That would be bigotry. That would be intolerance. That would be discrimination. Number five, only Christians seek to legislate morality. That's not true, amen? That's not true, But the assumption is everybody else just lets you do whatever you want and then Christians are trying to make laws that tell us what to do. Anytime human beings live together, somebody needs to decide what is acceptable, unacceptable, what is legal, what is illegal. As soon as that happens, there is a moral determination. There just is. So what I did as part of the project, I interviewed some Christian scholars and thinkers and I got their perspective on these problems, and one was a gentleman named Dr. Al Mohler, and here's what he said. People assume Christians are trying to impose morality when others supposedly are not, but in reality, all politics, all legislation, all public policy is a war of rival moralities. There is no such thing as a morally neutral stance when it comes to legislation. Christians are unapologetically involved in this for the same reason that others with rival worldviews are involved based upon our deepest convictions, we feel that our approach will lead to the greatest human flourishing. We have competing visions of what that will lead to. And the conflict is always what we are seeing in the headlines today. What he's saying is this, each group has a vision for how the world should be. And then people who share that vision, they come together and then they try to exert their influence to bring forth what they perceive to be in the best interest. And as different groups disagree, we're all seeking to bring into the marketplace of ideas what we believe is the solution to whatever the problem might be. Therefore, you can't say, these people have no right to participate. That again, would be intolerance. It would be bigotry, it would be discrimination. Every piece of legislation, environmental law, military appropriations, foreign aid, social welfare, taxation, traffic laws, all touches on moral issues. It all does. How old do you gotta be to vote? How old do you gotta be to get married? How old do you gotta be to drink? How much can you drink? And if you blow it on a breathalyzer, you've crossed some line, and now you're going to get arrested. Who decides whether or not you get to smoke indoors or you have to go outdoors? All of those are moral decisions. All of those are needing to draw a line somewhere. Let me just say this. Clearly, it's not just the Christian who says that a line should be drawn. Everyone does. Everyone who's ever been upset, anyone who's ever been angry, everybody who who protests or pickets or has a problem is saying that a line was crossed. The question is not, is there a line? But where is there a line? I was arguing with a guy recently. I said, well, what about if a 50 year old wants to marry an 11 year old? He said, well, that's wrong. Why? And he was not a Christian and he disagreed with me. I said, the issue is not, should there be a line? We both agree there should be a line. We're arguing over where to draw the line, but we both agree there needs to be a line. So this is the marketplace of ideas. And just because you disagree with someone does not mean that they have no right to articulate what they believe is in our best interest. And then number six, Only Christians on the political right work in politics. That was all the discussions. I read the 400 pages of transcripts over and over and over. That was fun. Um, And here's what one of the guys in Austin said, there's no other groups out there trying to impose their views. Right? Yeah, yeah, it would be like, huh. I will just say as a Bible believing Christian, There are things that my tax dollars go to that I'm not really excited about. Just steamrolling over everybody. Again, that's extreme and that's the radical people in the group. So then the facilitator asked, well, which people? Quoted three. He said, high level Republican leaders, and I'm not arguing for a political party. You'll see at the end, there's a great surprise. Hang in there. Pat Robertson, Westboro Baptist, and Jerry Falwell. Well, Pat Robertson does speak on issues and has a television show and news and such, okay. Westboro Baptist, are they really picking up momentum? No, they're nuttier than a Snickers bar. Those people are, they just are, right? I got picketed by Westboro Baptist because I was not the right kind of Christian they protest funerals, they get on the news, but there's not a lot of them and they're not really a movement. It's, it's, it's all just theater. Jerry Falwell passed away in 2007. <clears throat> people have opinions about him. I've taught at his former school. I've met his sons. They love Jesus. You can argue all day, pick whatever team you want. But what was interesting is of the people mentioned they didn't mention the fact that there are also people that are heavily politically involved and also pastors that are not on the right, but the left. The Reverend Al Sharpton, the Reverend Jesse Jackson. And I would submit to you, along with Dr. Billy Graham, the two most influential preachers in the history of the world, that would include Martin Luther King Jr. We, we tend to forget that he was a pastor. And I've read in college, I remember I, I got a bachelor's degree in speech. And one of the things I wanted to do was look at great speeches in the history of the world. And one of the focuses I had was on Martin Luther King Jr. And as I read the transcripts of his messages and I listened to them, he uses a tremendous amount of biblical imagery. And he tends to compare um, the plight of those who were under slavery or Jim Crow laws to the Old Testament book of Exodus, where people were oppressed and they were mistreated and God delivered them so that they could worship him freely. And he is a pastor who is using a lot of biblical imagery to present a view of what he believes And what the Bible teaches is the greatest human flourishing that everyone, male and female, black and white, young and old, rich and poor, is made in the image and likeness of God and has particular dignity bestowed on them because God made them and God loves them. And as he articulates that, people don't say, preacher, don't talk about public issues. We're like, thank you for doing that. That served us all. So, Part of the problem that I see is an inability, which I have tremendous sympathy towards, for people to confuse Christianity and Christendom. Be my next point. Um, Grace and I were talking about this between services. She's like, you gotta find a way to condense that and simplify that, okay? So we'll see, okay? Uh, I, I'm a nerd, okay? I, 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 I think, I study, I look at the history of ideas, I find all of this fascinating because I want the word to live in the world. I want the word to live in the world and I want the word to transform the world. So I need to understand the world so that I can introduce to it the word, okay? So let me try and summarize Christendom. Christendom was a 500 year roughly experiment that the United States of America was a part of. And it was asking, what is the way that we could create uh, the best um, social order for human flourishing? And it was decided that to have moral citizens, we need some sort of common moral understanding, therefore we need religion. Religion isn't primarily about salvation, forgiveness of sins, relationship with Jesus. Religion, Judeo-Christian ethic would be the language. It exists to say, this is right, this is wrong. And if we can have some sort of general concept of God that lives at the center and defines for us what is right and wrong, then that'll make a better nation and that'll make a more stable uh, culture. So marriage is good and there's a man and a woman and you should raise your kids and pay your taxes and be patriotic and and all of that. That's Christendom. It's not all bad, it's not all good. The problem becomes that there are many who are what I would call cultural Christians. They're not real Christians, they're cultural Christians. Because in that day, part of your civic duty of being a good citizen is you need to say you believe in God. Now, nobody would define who God was. So every guy, whoever runs for president or every gal, whoever runs for president has to get up and say, I believe in God. We're like, good. Nobody asks, who is that God? And then everybody gets to pour into that word God whatever their definition is. So you get all kinds of Different religious beliefs, perspectives, cults. You even get a guy like Thomas Jefferson who sat down with the Bible in the White House, took out his, I don't know if it was scissors or razor, and he cut out the parts of the Bible that he thought were wrong. Went to the New Testament, took out the miracles. And what he decided was this was the philosophy of Jesus Christ. So he reduced Jesus to a philosopher, not a God and Savior. But if you ask him, do you believe in God? Oh, I believe in God. They'll be like, okay, as long as you believe in God, check the box, you're good. As Christians, we want more. We want people not to just have a general concept of God, but to know Jesus is God. Our goal is not just that they would be better citizens, but they would be citizens of God's kingdom. And so this is the problem between what I'll call Christendom and Christianity, and those of you who are older or you grew up in more conservative environments, you understand this because when you're born, your parents have to take you to the church to be dedicated or baptized because that's what good people do, right? And it's Christmas, so the whole family has to get dressed up and go to church because that's what good people do. You're gonna get married. You gotta get married in the church. What? You want it to look good. Grandma's gonna cry, come on. We know you haven't been here for a while, but show up for the wedding. When you die, we're gonna have the meeting in the church, even if you've never been in the church, so that we all feel better about what is probably not a real good ending. And so there's, there's, there's social pressure Well, just say you believe in God. And if somebody asks, what church do you go to? Pick something, church, synagogue, mosque, whatever it might be, and try to be a good moral person because that's beneficial for social order. And if you're running for political office, you need to say, I believe in God. And if you're in business, you sure as heck better be in some church because otherwise, how are you gonna network and have other people trust you to build your business? Now what's happened is it's like musical chairs for 500 years, we always had a seat at the center and now the music has stopped and we don't. So older generations that are used to Christendom are now worried because their kids and grandkids are post-Christian. They're like, you know what? I don't need to say I believe in God. I don't need to go to church and I don't believe you need God to be good. In fact, I believe that Christianity is immoral. And it used to be, you can't be moral unless you believe in God. And now believing in God is that which is considered immoral. And so the the music has stopped playing and all of a sudden those who are Christians are saying, we lost our seat. And it leads to all this cultural upheaval and conflict. And often it's generational. Older folks are like, we need to get back to the good old days. And the younger people are like, nope, we're not interested, we have no interest. True or false? How many of you are feeling this in your family? And the goal is not to convert people to Christendom, but to Christ, okay? Not just believe in God, but believe Jesus is God. Not just to be better neighbors, but to be our neighbors in the kingdom of God together forever. And so what happens now is Christianity has in large part gone from the center to the margins. Now here's the good news, whether we're at the center or the margins, we can still do faithful ministry. In the nation of Israel, God's people were in the center, the calendar, the holidays, the diet, everything was around their belief structure being at the center. There were times that God's people were on the margins. So there was a guy named Joseph who was taken as a slave in a nation called Egypt. His faith was minority, not majority. He was on the margins, not the center, but he served faithfully and he actually was used of God in a political position to do tremendous good because God loved all the Egyptians even though they didn't yet love God. There's another guy named Daniel. He is taken captive into a nation called Babylon. It is a godless nation. He goes from the center to the margins but he serves faithfully in a political role and does tremendous cultural good because God loves all the Babylonians even though they don't yet love him. Something similar happens with a man named Nehemiah. There was an empire called Persia and he was serving in a political capacity and then God called him to use that opportunity to rebuild the nation of Jerusalem and the city of Jerusalem so that God might be worshiped and he did ministry from the margins. Here's what I'm telling you. You can be faithful in the center. You can be faithful in the margins. God can work from the center. God can work from the margins. Our issue is not where we are, but how we conduct ourselves wherever we find ourselves. That's the issue. So you be faithful in your sphere of influence. Maybe you're leading at a company and you have influence. Use it to love and serve. Maybe you're not in a position of leadership. You're on the margins. You can love, serve, and do good things from the margins. And what I would submit to you is that ultimately, as Christians, this is where I wanna drive the conversation. We need to think not in terms of culture up, but kingdom down, okay? Um, I'll show this to you, here are the words of Jesus. He's being interviewed in this context of John 18 by a political leader from the government. And Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus shows up and they're like, well, what team are you on? Jesus is like, I got my own team. Here's what you need to know. Bad things happen when people try and stuff Jesus onto their team. And this, and this is actually quite frustrating, if I'm honest, because every issue, somebody tries to stick Jesus in it. Well, just because his name is there doesn't mean that his values are there. And what, what Jesus is saying is my kingdom is not of this world. I'm a king with a much bigger kingdom and I'm going to bring my own kingdom. I didn't come to join your team. I came to bring my team. And what happens is we tend to think culture up, okay? Here's what Jesus says. Teaches us to pray, Matthew 6.10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let me, let me explain this. Traditionalists, conservatives tend to think that the answer is to go back. Back to the good old days when things were better, The world was saner, people were safer, the good old days. You'll hear older people talking about this. When I was a kid, things were so much better. When I was a kid, the world was so much greater. We need to go back. Critics will come along and say, "Um, if you go way back, there was slavery, and then there was Jim Crow laws, and there was segregation. Those weren't the good old days for everybody. So then the progressives, the liberals will come along and say, we don't need to go backward. We need to go forward. Change has been made, more changes need to be made. And this fits within an evolutionary framework. The evolutionary framework is things are getting better. So we just need to keep going. Now underlying all of this is a deep yearning and longing for the kingdom of God, okay? If we go back, it'll be like heaven. No, no, no. If we go forward, it'll be like heaven. It's why we wage wars. It's why we spend dollars. It's why we have elections. Every time there's an election, somebody is just saying, if we could win, then heaven comes. And 15 minutes later, we're all like, didn't happen. Right? So you go through these cycles of, unbridled optimism and then deep, profound despair. Everybody's trying to get to heaven. That's what I'm saying. And and heaven never comes. Because the answer is not to go back or to go forward. That's how the culture thinks. And many Christians are torn in the middle. How many of you, you're like, gosh, when the issues come up, I listen to both sides, I'm conflicted, I'm confused, I'm torn. I don't know what to do. Here's the Christian paradigm. It's not forward or backward, it's up or down. Culture comes from hell or heaven. In hell, there's no forgiveness, there's no love, uh, there's no consideration, uh, there's no sacrifice for the well being of others, there's no treating one another with dignity and love as human beings and image bearers of God. So option one is you can go down to hell and say, well, let's just pull that culture up. As the Christian, we say, no, actually, there's another place to get culture from. There is actually another realm, it's the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, everybody's under authority. It's not all lawlessness. And in the kingdom of God, there's life and people aren't killing each other and children are a blessing and marriage is honored. And when you're wrong, you apologize. and." Own it and if somebody does wrong, you forgive them and love them and you speak the truth and that's the place of greatest human flourishing. And as a Christian, we, whatever the issue is, whatever the situation is, whatever the circumstance is, we've got to ask ourselves, okay, I got to talk to the king about this and I got to look to the kingdom and I want his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. For the Christian, this is a mindset. The Bible says that we have the mind of Christ. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. All right, then it goes on to say, you'll know the will of God. You'll be able to make good decisions. See, the world doesn't think this way because the world doesn't have the word. And only in the word do we have this perspective on the world. What that means is that our citizenship is... Um, There, but our residence is here. That ultimately all the cultures are gonna go away and all we're gonna have is the kingdom. So anything that is not in alignment or agreement with that culture eventually has a shelf life comes to an end because when the king comes back, he's bringing the kingdom and everything that is contrary to the kingdom will be no more. So as citizens of that kingdom and residents of this culture, we wanna ask how do I live in light of my citizenship? and bring the kingdom to the earth because ultimately that's best for all the people. That's best for all the people. Because the God who made us is the God who knows what is best for us. So let me explain to you how to become a citizen of that kingdom. This is important. Your biggest problem is not political, it's moral and spiritual. The biggest conflict is not between you and someone else, it's between you and God. And the question is, how do we have this relationship with God reconciled? How do we have citizenship in his kingdom secured? Um, I'll share with you from Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10. For Christians, this is sort of a bedrock fundamental verse. For by grace you have been saved through faith the key is to know that you need to be saved, not just from a low self-esteem or not actualizing your potential or or an emotional tailspin. You need to be saved from hell. You need to be saved from God. You need to be saved from the wrath of God. And, And the good news is that there is a savior. In fact, Jesus Christ literally means God saves. that that we tend to get so fixated on all of this that we tend to not focus on that. I think it can be a demonic distraction. You're so freaked out by the news, so arguing over issues, so addicted to your social media, you forget about eternity. I'm gonna die, I might go to hell and be separated from God, enduring his wrath forever. That needs to find its way to the top of my priority list. When I get up in the morning, I gotta make sure that I'm checking on that issue before I'm checking on the other issues. Let me just tell you this issues, complications, distractions come and go, and they can keep you from the most important thing, which is being saved. It's being saved. I don't know if you know this, the world ain't working, and it's coming to an end. And people need to be saved. You have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. And he juxtaposes grace and works, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Here's how we tend to see it. I'm good, they're bad. Idolize people like me, demonize people like them. If they would just become like me, if they would just become like us, then everything would be fine. How many of you are married and you've experienced this? Amen? Let's just be honest, we're in charge. You know what's wrong with you, you're not like me. And then we can boast, we're the answer, you're the problem. God looks at the earth and says, actually, you're all the problem, and I'm the solution. People say, but I'm doing a lot, and God's like, that's the problem. Everything you're doing is wrong. That's works. For we are his workmanship. God works for you. God works in you. God works through you. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Option one is works. And that is, I'll fix it. I'll make it better, whether it is yourself or your culture. In culture, it is, I'll fix it, I'll save it, we'll band together, people like us will win, when we win, it'll be like heaven, never happens. We tend to think of history as evolutionary and upward. I see history as a cul-de-sac. Every generation drives around and says, look at all the progress we're making. You're going nowhere, you're accomplishing nothing. That's human works. We're the problem, not the solution. We're the arsonists. We're not the firefighters. Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the savior. Jesus is the solution. And it doesn't come up from the culture. It comes down from the kingdom. And so even if you look at a religious ideology, it is always you do something to save yourself i read it for you, made a summary. In Buddhism, ceasing desire saves you. In Confucianism, education, self-reflection, self-cultivation, living a moral life saves you. In Hinduism, detaching from your separated ego and making an effort to live in unity with the divine saves you. In Islam, living a life of good deeds according to the Quran saves you. In Orthodox Judaism, repentance prayer, working hard to obey God's laws save you. In New Age slash Sedona, gaining a new perspective... It's true. Through which you see how you're connected to the divine oneness of all things saves you. And Taoism, aligning yourself with the Tao, gives you peace and harmony and saves you. The whole problem is something needs to be done. What are you going to do? And the answer is he already did it. That's grace. Something needs to be done. And Jesus did what needed to be done. He lived the perfect life you have not lived. He went to the cross, substituted himself, and died to pay the price that you should pay. And on the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. That means all the work's done. So when he rises from death, he conquers Satan, sin, death, all the wrath of God. His name is Jesus, and he's awesome. What we do, we trust in him. That's faith. We receive salvation from him as a gift called grace. And you can't brag and say, look what I did. You can boast in him and say, look what he did. Leads to humility. And it shows us, I'm not the good guy, I'm the bad guy. That gives me a lot of compassion and hope for the other bad guys. And we are not saved by our works, but the works of Jesus, but we are saved to our good works. Let me explain this. This was spring break week. We were in California with some of the kids. I was walking on the beach and I was preparing for the sermon and I was not looking forward to talking about politics, just so you know. Um, I like my life and, uh, and our world is so adversarial and there's such disdain and lack of even decency for one another. It's just, it's, it's, it's hard to see. But I was walking on the beach and I was talking to the Lord I was like, Lord, I wrote a little chapter. I did my best to try and give some cultural perspective, but I wanna bring the word to the world, right? Again, some sermons are from the word, some are to the word. I wanna start with people who don't know or believe in the God of the Bible, but to listen, to empathize, to love, to consider, and to say, okay, I've, I've listened, and I think I understand, I'm trying my best. Can, can I bring you to the word? And would you at least consider that so that, so that we're both being respectful? so I was talking to the Lord and I was like, Lord, what did I miss? I I know I always miss something. Is there anything that I need to say that I didn't say in the book, in the chapter? And God spoke to me two words, new man, new man. And I thought, okay, that's in Ephesians. And you know what? It's the very next section you're saved by Jesus to do good works. The good works are being the new man. What does that mean? Well, let's look at it, I'm glad you asked. Thank you for asking. Um, That is that Christianity is the third way. So let me set this up. Everywhere I've ever been, there's us versus them. You're the problem, we're the solution. And both sides think that they get to wear the white hat in the old Western. So I've been to South Africa. There are those who are black and those who are white. There are those who live in apartheid and poverty and those who are living in prosperity. I've been to Ireland. There is Northern Ireland, there is Southern Ireland and they have a real conflict. When we went to Israel. We were in Jerusalem. We had a tour guide and a bus. Once we got to the wall that separated Jerusalem from Bethlehem, we had to get off the bus, leave our tour guide, pass through armed security checkpoint, get on a different bus with a different tour guide because we were allowed to pass between the two, but they were not. All over the world in every culture, it's always, we're good, you're bad, us versus them. This was perhaps most pronounced at the time that this was written. There were two groups in the days of Jesus and early Christianity that really didn't like each other. Spiritually, they completely disagreed. Morally, they completely disagreed. Politically, they completely disagreed. They fought all the time over everything. Do you know what the two groups are? The Jews, the Gentiles the Jews and the Gentiles. There was such acrimony that some rabbis taught if a Gentile woman is giving birth to a baby and has a medical problem, you should not help her because it would be a sin to bring another Gentile into the world. Some taught that the reason that God made Gentiles is he needed cordwood for hell. If a Gentile kid and a Jewish kid married, their family had a funeral and considered them dead. We're not the first culture to have some conflict. Christianity comes into an environment, a reality, a world that is profoundly and deeply divided. And there are only two ways. And here's what the Bible says. Therefore, remember that one time you, Gentiles. Who are the Gentiles? That's us. That's most of us, amen? We're the Gentiles. What's weird is Jesus comes. He is Jewish. Early Christians are almost all Jewish. By the end of the first century, almost all the Christians are Gentiles. This is, this is like the Klan and the Black Panthers. Both are like, we wanna be on Team Jesus. Where's the meeting? They show up, they're like, what are you doing here? What are you doing Oh no, are we on the same team now? There's a lot to resolve, amen? That was the tension that the early church was under. Groups that hated each other now find themselves all on Team Jesus. The question was, what do we do with these crazy Gentiles? So much of the New Testament is answering the question, what happens when the third team, the third way, the new man comes together? So like the letter of 1 Corinthians, all the Gentiles are like, uh, hey, thanks for wine at communion. Can we get drunk? And they're just like, really? That, that's never been a question. One dude shows up living and sleeping with his mother-in-law. They got a rainbow on the back of the camel. Nobody has a problem with it. And they're like, what do we do with this guy? This is different, uh, you know, this is new. So the Gentiles bring all these questions that it was like, I can't even believe there's a question. Okay, And then there's whole books of the Bible like Galatians that are written to, to ask, well, do the Gentiles just need to become Jewish? Because the Jewish people was, we're good, you're bad, you be like us. And the Gentiles are like, what does that mean? And the Jews are like, get circumcised. And the guys are like, oh, oh. If I got to go to hell to be circumcised, I'm not sure which one is worse. Um, you know, and so I should have edited that out. But nonetheless, it's weird because the Gentiles all get together and they're like, yeah, we took a vote. It was crazy. First time in the history of the church there's ever been a unanimous vote. None of the guys want to get circumcised. You know? so, so the whole book of Galatians is written to address that issue. We'll start it after Easter. I'm not making this up. Okay, but pray because I could get into a lot of trouble. But that's what we're going to talk about. And so... There's this new team, it's team Jesus. Therefore, remember that one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. How many of you don't use those terms anymore? Are you the circumcision or the uncircumcision? Like who's checking? Like what the? Okay, when we read this One, two, three, not it. Right, when we read this, (laughs) when we read this, we think, what a silly way to divide people. And God looks at all of us and says, what a silly way to divide people. Okay, because there's little nicknames, little slang terms, little, little, little group stereotyping. That's what's going on. And he's calling it out, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having how much hope? No hope, and without God in the world. Boy, that's pretty bleak. Separated, alienated, strangers, no hope, without God. That's bleak. But here's good news, now in Christ Jesus, You who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Jesus died for you. Jesus loves you. Jesus forgives you. Jesus saves you. Jesus changes you. Again, saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone to do the good works which he prepared in advance for us to do. The good works start with, we're not on that team. We're not on that team. We're on his team. New group. Whatever identified you before Jesus, nationality, race, gender, political persuasion, all of those are secondary, new team, new allegiance, new alliance, new identity, team Jesus. He continues, for he himself is our peace. He has made us both one, has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, Not only does Jesus bring peace between us and God, he brings peace between us and each other. This doesn't mean that we don't have disagreements or dialogues or debates, but it's within the context of all being on the same team, all being part of the same family, always being citizens of the same kingdom. Jesus died to take away the hostility and to bring the peace between you and God and you and others. I always say this when I officiate a wedding, I make the husband and wife, the bride and the groom face each other, And I look at the people and I say, there's only two problems with this relationship, this man and this woman. Those are the only two problems that these people could potentially have. And people kind of chuckle, but the married people are like, that's a very good insight. And then, (laughs) and I say, what's gonna happen is between these two people will come sin and sin will lead to death of this relationship unless they both remember that Jesus already died so that there can be peace and not hostility They can be one and not two. They can live in love and not kill each other. See, Jesus isn't just for your eternal life. He's also for this life. Jesus is not just for your relationship with God. He's for all your relationships. That he might create in himself, what? One, what? New man. They walk in on their name tag. I'm circumcision. They'd walk in. I'm on circumcision. Take your name tags off. New name tag. You're new. New group. New team. New family. New category. New identity. You're new. You're all on Team Jesus. Love each other. Sort it out. Dialogue it. Debate it. But in the end, you're a family. You're going to be together forever. Figure it out. In the place of two, so making peace and he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Let me just close maybe with this, okay? Revelation 7 gives us a picture of where this is all going. Revelation 7, 9 through 10. After this, I looked up. I'll invite the band up at this time. You know what? Sometimes it's good to look up. You know what? The whole world is looking at, at, at their phone. You know what they're doing? They're looking down. All the problems, all the politics, all the conflict, all the division, all the acrimony, all the infighting, everybody's looking down. Look up. Where does my help come from? It comes from the Lord. The solution comes down. It doesn't come up. So you got to look up. Today we want to look up to Jesus. We want to look up to the Jesus who rose from death. We wanna look up to the Jesus who is a king. We wanna look up to the Jesus who has a kingdom and it's an awesome kingdom. And right now in the presence of the resurrected Jesus, our King of kings and Lord of lords, the one who will put an end to all politics, all cultures, all nations, all divisions for all time once he returns. Right now in the presence of Jesus, something is happening. I'll read it to you. After this, I looked up and behold a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, every nation, all tribes, all tribes and peoples and languages. You know what those are? Those are divisions. And those divisions are removed when Jesus is your king, when Jesus is your Lord, when Jesus is your authority, when Jesus is the center and people proceed closer to him, they become closer to one another. The answer for the world is Jesus. The hope of the world is Jesus. And when we come together as the people of God and the church of God, we are providing the world an option it does not have. All the world has is two options. Christianity provides the third way. Team Jesus, repent of whomever you're demonizing, recognize your own faults, flaws, and failures, acknowledge that you are a problem, not a solution, and that Jesus is your savior and you need him because you are a sinner. And then start worshiping him, looking up to him, trusting him, following him, enjoying him, wanting to become like him and serve others as he has served you clothed in white robes because all of God's people are forgiven. And it goes on to say, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and in the lamb. And right now in the presence of Jesus, there are departed brothers and sisters, saints, They're from all nations, all cultures, all languages, all tribes, all cultural groupings, all political persuasions. And right now, they're all worshiping Jesus. They're thinking about Jesus. They're focusing on Jesus. They're becoming increasingly more magnificently aware of the greatness, the glory, and the grandeur of Jesus. And so what I'm gonna invite you to do, I don't care if you're young or old, black or white, rich or poor, if you're suburban or rural, if you are Democrat or Republican, his name is Jesus. It's always about Jesus. It's only about Jesus. Every single person needs Jesus. And this world is a dumpster fire until everyone is worshiping him. So let's start by worshiping him together today. Amen? Let's throw a little Team Jesus party! If you live in or are visiting the Greater Phoenix Valley, please join us at the Trinity Church in Scottsdale, Arizona. You can also watch Pastor Mark Live on Sundays, YouTube, Facebook, the app, or at markdriscoll.org. And as Pastor Mark always says, it's all about Jesus.